dear Grace Church, on this unusual Easter Sunday morning when the coronavirus has shut down a vast swath of the entire world, I nonetheless bring you glad greetings in the name of the second person of the eternal triune Godhead. He is the Ancient of Days, the I Am, the once slain Lamb who gave his own blood as our eternal high priest, the one who passed through the heavens, who even now sits as king forevermore in his risen from the grave victory over sin, death, and Satan. He is the only Savior for sinners who ever beams from his glorious face, the brilliance of the glory of God. Indeed, I greet you in the name above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Happy Easter Sunday, Grace Church. Our Redeemer lives. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And as God would have it, our sermon text that falls today, which was, of course, scheduled for several Sundays ago, actually proclaims the ultimate reason that that first Easter Sunday morning happened, namely, so that you and I could behold continually and forever into eternity what the high priest in the Old Testament were privileged to behold only one time a year. When those priests would enter into the Holy of Holies, they would be enveloped into the manifest presence of the glory of God. Those priests would then approach that sacred Ark of the Covenant on top of which were two angels fashioned facing one another over a slab of gold called the mercy seat. It was there that God accepted those priests' blood sacrifice on behalf of his people. And as we fast forward to the New Testament, we find on Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Day, John chapter 20, that Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And this is Mary Magdalene. And as she wept, John 20 verse 11 says, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And what did she see? She saw two angels in white sitting, quote, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. Do you see the connection? On Resurrection Sunday morning, God allowed Mary Magdalene to stand over that slab where two angels were facing one another. And then she turned around and she saw in a more brilliant fashion what the Old Testament priests would have longed to have seen. She saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. John chapter 20, verses 13 to 18 tell us that. And in verse 18, Mary declares in her own words, I have seen the Lord. Well, may God show us his glory today. Our sermon text is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is one of the Himalaya highest mountain peaks in the entire Bible. Open your heart to hear the voice of our God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What a God, what a gospel, what a word. Join me at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help to look in to the things he reveals to us in this passage. Oh, Father, we do bow before you, and I pray with all my heart 
that by your grace and for your well-deserved glory, you would pull the veil back and allow us to see by the illumining work of the Holy Spirit what you see in the face of Christ. Show us your glory, O God. I pray for the young people of Grace Church that today would be the day of salvation as you step in to their hearts and you shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I pray for all of us. Oh God, would you ruin us for all lesser things by showing us the surpassing value of the knowledge of Jesus. Set our minds on things above, not on things on earth, because we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God with whom we've been raised. Be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage continues, as we've seen for several weeks now, Paul's defense of his new covenant ministry. He began that that defense in chapter 2, verse 12, and he continues it well beyond our text today, actually concluding in chapter 7, verse 6. Today's passage not only is a continuation of Paul's defense of his ministry, but it's certainly a continuation of the thought that he began in last week's passage, which concluded in chapter 3, verse 18, with Paul's statement about the Christian's high privilege, not only a privilege, it is certainly also a calling to behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, to gaze intently upon the glory of Christ and thereby to be changed into that same image from glory to glory, from one degree to another. And this happens, as the text says, as the Holy Spirit illumines Christ to us in the word. Well, the first thing we see in today's text is in verses 1 and 2. And what we learn is that the gospel message governs its ministry methods. The way the gospel is presented and the package in which it is delivered is to be governed by the message itself. The gospel message governs its ministry methods. One commentator, Paul Barnett, put it this way. There are patterns of behavior consistent with the ministry of the gospel. That is, the gospel must influence the way we go about presenting its glorious truth. That's what Paul means in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, this ministry in verse 1 harkens back to the previous chapter where Paul explained that he is a minister of the new covenant. That is, he is a preacher of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who was promised in the old covenant, who would come and would be the fulfillment of all of God's redeeming promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises to send a redeemer who would forgive our sins and bring us safely into the presence of God forever. That's the this ministry that Paul's referring to in verse one. And it's because Paul knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to save his people that he does not therefore lose heart. Do you see that in verse one? No matter what opposition Paul was facing from the pagan world, and there was plenty of that, or even from within the church itself, and there was also plenty of that, he writes, we do not lose heart. That's because he had received this ministry to be an ambassador of Christ. Well, we're saying that the gospel message should govern the ministry methods that we employ because the gospel is so glorious. We should be taking great care how we present this glorious truth. And the local church is to be shaped by and reflect the beauty of this glorious truth. So Paul says, because we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, therein is a statement about the cross and the labors of Jesus. We do not lose heart. But then he starts to talk about what he does not do. And that's because there were people who had crept into Corinth who were peddling God's word and were presenting themselves as some kind of reputable 
ambassadors of Christ, but they were really charlatans, and they were trying to schmooze the people out of their affections uh, away from Paul and toward themselves, and probably out of their resources, robbing them and extorting them and using Christ and his word as a means to their selfish gain, desires, and ends. So Paul says, we're not like that. That's what verse 2 is about, and that's our really our main point here at the beginning. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. It's the first thing you cannot do. You cannot shamefully hide sinister motives and be an authentic ambassador of Christ. And number two, verse two, we do not walk in craftiness. Number three, we do not adulterate the word of God. Number four, verse two, we manifest the truth. And also number five, verse two, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So again, the gospel message must govern our ministry methods. It is the message of the gospel that must govern and shape how we deliver God's richest affair. Later in this same letter, chapter 11, Paul is going to describe these false apostles as, quote, deceitful workers. Paul even says that they disguise themselves as angels of light. And he goes on in that passage to say that Satan also has disguised himself as a servant of light. So these false apostles disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But Paul says very clearly, their end will be according to their deeds. You see, our life can inauthenticate the message. It is of utmost importance that our life be shaped by the gospel that we proclaim. People will otherwise be tempted to disbelieve. We will give them extra hurdles to get over, not to mention the ones that the gospel itself necessarily causes, like declaring all men sinners and guilty and hell-deserving. But we can actually compound the problem by having a life that is out of compliance with the Lordship of Jesus and as is fitting for those who are ambassadors of Christ. Just like it would be wrong for you and I to go and pay high dollar for the world's finest cut of steak at some kind of exquisite restaurant only for that fine cut of meat to be brought out to our table between the uh, pieces of a McDonald's Big Mac bun. It is also imperative that the truth of the gospel drive the methods with which it is ministered. That's what verses 1 and 2 are about. So what Paul's saying in chapter 11 about the deceitful workers, people who disguise themselves to be one thing, but their life is not shaped by the gospel that they profess to proclaim. And what he's saying here in chapter 4 is that the gospel message is to so pervade everything that it touches that the methods we use to convey that gospel must correspond to the God of all glory whom it concerns. Too often through gimmicks and ministry trickery, both by individuals and churches, men expose themselves, don't they? To be disbelieving that the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We don't need tricks or gimmicks. We don't need to peddle the word of God or to disguise ourselves to be one thing in hopes that people would believe this message of God's saving power in Christ. When God flipped the world upside down through the 16th century Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther was asked, how did you accomplish so much in so little time? And Luther's famous reply fits well with what Paul's talking about here in verses 1 and 2. Luther said, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, a poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. 
See, Luther said that he just let the lion out of the cage, the word of God and the gospel of Christ. And that's what Paul was unleashing upon the first century. The truth of justification for sinners before God on the basis of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, on the authority of God's word alone. You don't need tricks or gimmicks. You don't need to be hiding things because of shame. We renounce that. You don't have to walk in craftiness or adulterate God's word. Simply manifest the truth and commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's assurance, though, is not ultimately that any man would approve of his ministry. Rather, he tells us in verse 2 that his conscience is clear because he knows that he represents God before men as if God himself were in the room when he preaches the gospel of Christ. In fact, Paul knows that God is in the room with him always. And while the world is shut down from this coronavirus and people are isolating from one another, there is one glorious person from whom you can never escape. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 2. By the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So our first point is that the gospel message governs our ministry methods. The second point, verses 3 and 4, is that the blindness of lost men does not make the sun of the gospel dark. Listen to this, verses 3 and 4. Paul presses the issue of the gospel beyond the methods man may use in conveying its message. And he presses into the spiritual dimension of the warfare that exists in the hearts of those who do not see the beauty of God's glory in the gospel message that he presents to them. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, uh, glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul tells us very clearly who and why. Who are they that cannot see the beauty of God's glory in the gospel? And why can they not see such a clear display of God's glory? Who are they? Verse 3, those who are perishing, those who are dying, those who are headed for a Christless eternity, those who will spend endless ages in the literal hell because they are perishing people who will forever perish. Who else are they? Verse 4, they are the unbelieving, the people without faith to apprehend Christ, to lay hold of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. They are perishing and unbelieving. That's who they are. But why? Verse 4, because the God of this world has blinded their mind. The God of this world, of course, is a reference to Satan. Elsewhere in Scripture, he is referred to as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. He's referred to by Jesus in the Gospel of John as the ruler of this world. So when Paul says the God of this world, he's speaking about Satan himself, who 2 Timothy Chapter 2 teaches us that unrepentant pe people are held captive by Satan to do his will. This is urgent, friends. It couldn't be more urgent, and I couldn't be more blood earnest. This is why dear brothers in church history like Charles Hodge warn us on the basis of verse 3. Hodge wrote, it's not necessary that men should serve Satan or even worship him. And it's not even necessary that they should even know that such a being as Satan exists. It is enough for him that he actually controls them, that they fulfill his purposes implicitly. And Hodge concluded, not to serve God is to serve Satan. If Jehovah be not our God, Hodge wrote, then Satan is. Do you see? 
In verse 3, Paul minces no words. The God of this world has blinded people's minds from seeing the beauty of the gospel message he proclaims and the light that it shines in the person of Jesus, who is the image of God. Charles Simeon, like Hodge, explained on this verse, quote, Therefore, this is the great work of Satan to accomplish in your life. He cares not what we know or what we do, if he can but keep us from beholding the divine image in the face of Jesus. I know we talk a lot at Grace Church about look to Christ and fix your eyes on Jesus. This is why. Because the one thing Satan does not want you to see is the glory of God in the person of Jesus. You see, God has put forward Christ, his eternal son, as a propitiation in his blood. That is to make the needed sacrifice for your sin, not only so that you can be forgiven, and that is a glorious truth, but so that you could have the righteousness of that Jesus imputed to you so that you too could join Jesus in beholding God's glory without being incinerated. God raised Jesus in glory everlasting because, as Simeon put it, nothing short of a discovery of Christ will ever save your soul. He goes on, nothing but a revelation of Christ to your soul will be the only possible source of life and salvation. He writes, therefore, it is the duty of ministers to preach Christ and to know nothing but Christ in all their labors, since nothing but that will save the souls of those to whom they minister. Friends, it is those who are blinded by the prince of darkness who cannot see the brightness of the gospel sun. But if the whole world be blind, it does not mean that the sun is not shining. Like noonday brightness, only 10 billion times brighter, God's glory is brilliantly beaming from his sun. Verse 3 says that those to whom the gospel is veiled or covered, clearly hearkening back to what he had spoken about at the end of chapter 3, about people not being able to see what the old covenant was pointing to the entire time because they have a veil over their mind and over their heart. And here in verse three, Paul says, those to whom the gospel is veiled, according to verse four, have been blinded by the God of this world. Charles Hodge, quote, Satan intends to prevent you from seeing the glory of Christ. Is he being successful in your life? No one else can live your Christian life for you. Have you beheld the glory of Christ? Look what these people can't see. These perishing, verse 3, unbelieving, verse 4. Look what they can't see. Let your eyes fall on the three genitive phrases. That is the possessive phrases in that loaded part of verse 4. What can't they see? Verse 4, the light of the gospel. That light, the good news that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day, just like the scripture said he would. Satan keeps people from seeing that light. The light of the gospel, verse 4, of the glory of See, the gospel's not just a bunch of ancient historical facts. It is that. Jesus Christ in literal history was a man, and the historicity of his cross and resurrection is indisputable. But inside that history, there is glory. And that drills down to the last of the three genitive phrases. It is the light of the gospel, of the glory, of Christ the person of Jesus. He's the epicenter of the gospel. What Peter, James, and John beheld on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Peter would describe some 30 plus years later as seeing in the Father what he called the majestic glory. Matthew, speaking about the account of Christ's transfiguration, says when Jesus was transfigured before them, he shone like the sun. Put that together. Gospel light of glory of Christ. Paul Barnett wrote in his commentary, the light comes from the glory that is radiated by Christ, who is the image of God. When God offers you Jesus, he offers you the highest treasure in the universe. That's why Ephesians says things like all the blessings in the heavenly places have been given to believers in Christ. Let your eyes fall on that last line of verse four. The gospel of the glory of Christ. Look at this. Who is the image of God. This word image is the word from which we get our English word icon. It's the Greek word icon. It's so significant biblically that Christ is described here and elsewhere as the one who is the image of God. In the Bible, we learn in places like John chapter one, no one has seen God at any time. God spoke to Moses in Exodus thirty-three twenty: you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. We're told in 1 Timothy 6, 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light, quote, whom no man has seen or can see. So do you see what Paul is now saying at the end of verse four? He's declaring that in the new covenant, in the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ, that he proclaims unashamedly and does not lose heart, verse one, in doing so, is because those who believe and are saved are permitted to see what verse four unbelievers and perishing people cannot see. Namely, we get to see the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We get to see what Paul saw on the road to Damascus. He saw outwardly and no doubt inwardly. And we get to see spiritually and inwardly that same glory that Christ is the icon, the image of God. Believers see that the invisible God has fully revealed himself in Jesus. He is Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. We can say what Jesus said to Philip with full on faith. If we have seen Jesus, John 14, nine, we have seen the father. Barnett also added light from the glorified Christ streams into the heart through hearing the gospel. Has this light flooded your heart? My January, 2015 sermon on this same passage I was looking back at some of those notes and was struck by this meditation. Don't miss that Paul is in this passage not writing to an individual, but rather to a local church. He's writing, of course, to the church at Corinth, which we can infer, Grace Church. We, too, as a local congregation of Christ, are called first and foremost to see Christ in all of his magnificent, redeeming gospel glory. I said there, if we're good at everything else, if we're good at doing church, but we get this wrong and we're unattracted to the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the icon, the image of God, then what good will everything else be? Grace Church, let us be looking unto Jesus. So first we saw that the gospel itself shapes the methods that are used in proclaiming it. We saw second that the blindness of lost men is an evidence of their satanic delusion that they are blinded by him, not because the gospel itself is not brilliant and bright. And third, we see verse five that the gospel dictates who is made much of. This is core to the Christian faith. 
all God does, God does for his own glory. He's unashamed about that truth and unabashed. And that's actually the greatest possible news for us, because the best thing for us is the God of all glory. Verse five is another one of those powerfully condensed verses in the Bible that drives everything about everything about how the elders of Grace Church seek to operate in our discharge of gospel ministry. And what I mean by that is that in our preaching, in our teaching, in our counseling, in our discipleship, in the classes that we hold, in our tending of the Lord's lambs, in our praying, and in all other forms of soul care, we seek to proclaim nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. That's because our ambition is to present every person of this precious flock complete in Christ. And the only way to do that, according to Colossians 1.28, is to proclaim Christ. Simply put, Jesus Christ and his gospel accomplishments are the only message that we have. And that's what Paul's talking about, really, in verse 5. That's not special or unique to us. That's just typical of every gospel ministry. The gospel actually dictates who is made much of by her ministers. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The light of the gospel of the glory of God and the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God in verse four, has a profound, comprehensively shaping and very obvious implication for faithful gospel ambassadors. That is, we proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord. We don't preach ourselves. Here, the word Lord is applied to Christ Jesus and it is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament tetragrammaton, the four-lettered divine name, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Jehovah, that unpronounceable sacred divine name. When we say what Paul is talking about here in verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. He is equating Jesus, the Christ, with Yahweh of the Old Testament, that is that Jesus Christ is God. C.K. Barrett said of verse 5, it would be hard to describe the Christian ministry more comprehensively in so few words. This is Christian ministry. Paul did everything he did for Jesus' sake. And he gladly made himself a servant of the church at Corinth and others for Jesus' sake. His motive in ministry was to glorify Christ instead of lording his influence over the Corinthians or anyone else and expecting them to serve him. He gladly made himself their slave. Verse five, unlike those who had come into Corinth and were peddling God's word for personal gain, Paul rather preached the gospel of God to them. Second Corinthians eleven seven, without charge. So these words stand as a rebuke to anyone who claims to be a minister of the gospel while at the same time aspiring to personal prestige, recognition, fame, worldly greatness. Barnett said, whoever fails to first preach Jesus Christ as Lord or second be a slave for Jesus' sake fails at the most fundamental point of ministry. The gospel dictates who is made much of, not ourselves, Christ Jesus as Lord. That's why we say around Grace Church, if you're not interested in Jesus, you're probably going to be very bored here because he's all we have. And praise God, he's all we need. We want everything to unabashedly be about him because the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus told us, is to make much of Jesus, to glorify him. So we can be sure that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and at work in our hearts and lives and in our local church to the degree that Jesus Christ is lifted up and delighted in. That's what verse 5 is about. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. And we're glad to be servants of anyone for Jesus' sake. Finally, verse 6. God's new creation power through the gospel in our heart. 
For God who said, verse 6, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In this verse, Paul is clearly drawing our attention back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, where we see the power of God shining his light into the dark void of the formless creation. Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. So just as the world was in a dark chaos prior to God's order and bringing light, so too the gospel brings the light of God's glory into the chaos of our human sin and darkness and makes right all that sin has corrupted in us that had been made wrong. God speaks and light bursts forth, bursts forth. And the same thing happens deep in our hearts when we see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But in the gospel, something far greater than physical creation happens. Verse 6 says it happens in our hearts. And I want to say loudly and clearly, this happens to every Christian. Charles Hodge says the glory of Christ is the sum of all the divine and human excellence which is centered in his person. And makes him the radiant point in the universe. He is the clearest manifestation of God to his creatures. He is the object, therefore, of supreme admiration, adoration, and love to all of his saints. To see this glory is to be saved. This happens in the heart of every Christian. That's what Paul means. The one who has shown in our hearts is the same God who spoke creation into existence, but he has done it in an even greater, more powerful, more cataclysmic way. He has deep within us shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Those who know the true Jesus and have been united to him by faith know that he is all that the scripture describes him to be. We too say with the author of Hebrews that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. We too say what Paul wrote to the Colossian church, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. God shines into the hearts of every person who responds by faith to the gospel. And when you respond to the gospel, you respond because God makes you alive to see in Jesus what you would have seen had sin never infected you. That is, you see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Oh, beloved, if so, you will love him. So do you love him? Does that love for him excel all other loves? Do you have an appetite for Christ? Does this appetite govern your life? When Paul speaks of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, he's telling us that Jesus is that long-awaited fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah spoke. Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land The light will shine on them. But look at the radical God-centeredness of all of this. God who said is the one who has shown the glory of God. Don't you love it? All God's work leads to God's glory. And in the gospel, we find the same pattern. When you look at Christ's face, you're seeing the glory of God. And believers love that he is the object of all our affection. Look, just meditate on those parallel phrases. Verse 4 and verse 6, they're obviously set up as parallels, but they're meant to make us think, and then that thinking lead to praising God for who he is and how he's revealed himself to, in, to us in Christ. 
and in his gospel labors. Verse 4, the light of the gospel. Verse 6, the light of the knowledge. Verse 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Give your life to drinking deeply on those two parallel phrases in those two verses, and you will be deeply benefited. The great evidence, as I mentioned, that the Holy Spirit is within you and is at work in your life, the great evidence is that the Spirit is illumining your heart to see what verse 4 and verse 6 are talking about. The glory of God in the face of Christ, verse 6. The glory of Christ, verse 4. God must shine this light in our hearts. We can't create it on our own. We're a darkened cavern, needy and helpless. God must do the work. And that's exactly the way it's phrased in this verse. The one who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts all the glory belongs to God because he alone accomplishes the work. When our elders were thinking about this passage and knowing that it was coming, Jim Suggs was meditating deeply on it, and uh, he sent to me the following. The Apostle Paul's ministry, which we see in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4, is tethered to the fact that he experienced verse 6. He, he had experienced, Jim is saying, God shining the light of his glory in the face of his son into the darkness of Paul's heart. So Jim wrote the Damascus Road encounter where Saul of Tarsus saw the glory of the risen Jesus, ruined him for God. He saw his face, Jim writes, verse 6. He received mercy, verse 1. It drove everything he did in ministry. He can't do anything other than 1 Corinthians 2.2. That is to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jim concluded, it reminded me again of that Paul Washer illustration. If you've been hit by a truck, then you'll look like you've been hit by a truck. Paul is different now. He looks like he's hit, been hit by the truck. He talks about the truck. It, uh, he embodies Acts 4.13. That is, he has been with Jesus. And Jim concluded, it shouldn't be any different for us. So let's apply these great truths. I'll give you two simple thoughts and trust that the Holy Spirit has stirred many more in your heart. Thought number one for application. The gospel is God's invitation to you for time and eternity. And I want to be very clear about what God's inviting you to. To join God in doing what God has been doing and enjoying for all eternity. One more time. The gospel is God's invitation to you for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity. For you to join him in doing what he has enjoyed for all eternity. If you don't want to enjoy what God enjoys, then you will not enjoy his heaven. Page 109 of our Exodus study in the commentary notes provides this powerful thought. There is no darkness so dark as the depths of the unregenerate heart with which each of us is born. However, there is a sure remedy to bring God's light into this darkness. And the answer given, page 109, is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Friends, this is the work you must have. God himself who created the galaxies who spoke everything that exists into existence, must do something even greater in your heart. And we know that the work of the gospel is greater than the work of creation because at the very least we can see in creation, God spoke. But in redemption, 
his son dismounted the throne of glory and came from everlasting bliss into the sin-torn world. He didn't speak. He laid down his life. Jesus, God's eternal son, who is the delight of the father, gave himself for you at Calvary so that you could be given to God for eternity. He paid for your sins and he is willing to clothe you in his righteousness and the Holy Spirit would be delighted to shine into your heart what God sees in the face of his son. And the gospel I'm saying, application number one, is God's invitation to you to join him in what he has enjoyed for all of eternity. And every Christian relishes the privilege to be in glory where we will then be without sin so that we can maximally delight in Christ. And if we don't have any appetite for him now, then it should cause us serious concern and cause us to question why we would even begin to think that we would have maximum appetite for him then. Number one, the gospel is God inviting you for eternity to join him in doing what he has enjoyed for all eternity. Number two, I want to leave you with something to consider. What will heaven be like? What will it be like? Jesus tells us very clearly that he wants us to be there, John 17, so that we can see his glory. What will that be like? Well, try to imagine it the way the Bible describes the new heavens, the new earth, a perfect universe, something like the paradise of the Garden of Eden covering the entirety of the cosmos, not one corner, not one inch, not one far off region where the will of God is not being done on earth as it is in heaven, where everything exists for God's glory and everything is perfectly satisfied and everyone is fully delighted in God. Revelation 21 speaks of that age. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Christ will be revealing his unshielded, unveiled glory. So much so that heaven itself will have no need for the sun because the brightness of Christ's glory will cause an eternal daytime for every aspect of heaven. Think about how glorious he is to brighten all of heaven for all of eternity with his luminance and brilliance and glory. Revelation 22, 5 speaks of that age. And there will be, there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. Oh, to see Jesus. To see him now, to delight in him now, to have our heart raptured and carried away so that we would long even more to have that unveiled, unrestricted glory that every believer will enjoy with him in eternity. Well, this may sound like too much glory talk, so I'll leave you with the words of one of my dearest friends from church history, something that I want you to meditate upon, in fact, to examine your hearts by. This comes from one of the most Christ-intoxicated writers that I have ever bumped into down the pathway of church history. His name is Isaac Ambrose, 
and in his big book, Looking Unto Jesus, page 694, this is what he has to say for our consideration. In the knowledge of Christ, there is an excellency above all other knowledge in the world. There is nothing more pleasing and comfortable, nothing more animating and enlivening, nothing more ravishing and soul-contenting. Only Christ is the sun and center of all divine revealed truths. We can preach nothing else as the object of our faith, as the necessary element of our soul's salvation, which does not in some way or other either meet in Christ or refer to Christ. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness. Only Christ is that ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and men, a mystery which the angels of heaven desire to pry and peep and look into. First Peter 1. Here is a blessed subject indeed. Who would not be glad to look into it, to be acquainted with it? This is life eternal, to know God and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Come then, let us look on this son of righteousness. We cannot receive harm but good by such a look. As Christ is more excellent than all the world, so this sight transcends all other sights. He is the epitome of a Christian's happiness, the quintessence of every evangelical duty is this, looking unto Jesus. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, especially verses 4 and 6 are about, that God has made known to you his own glory in Jesus, who is the image of God. And God has shown the light of the knowledge of his glory in the hearts of those who believe. And that glorious reflection is seen in the face of his son. He rose from the dead so that you could enjoy beholding God's glory beaming from his face for eternity. He's the full salary package that God gives to us in the gospel. And oh, what it would be if we could get a fresh sight of him today. May God so bless you. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of looking together at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we ask now, God, that you would do it, that each of us would experience what it's like to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, not once, but over and over again. And, oh, God, would you decimate and destroy and tear down the blinding work of Satan? And would you raise up and hold high the glory of Jesus Christ, who for us was crucified buried and rose again so that we could have access to you forever to behold what you have beheld forever your glory reflected by your spirit's power in the face of your son we love you and we praise you in jesus name amen